Namaste. So as part of writings of Shirobindo, today we take up Collected Works of Shirobindo, Volume 27. Letters on Poetry and Art. Now this volume, uh, it's amazing because very often it's part of the series on Letters on Yoga. And uh, earlier in SABCL, it was uh, not separated. There was one single, there were three volumes of Letters on Yoga. And uh, of course, there were certain letters on himself, etc. But now they have discovered a lot of letters and it's very nice that they have, the present editors have segregated this volume separately. The beauty of this volume is that very often people may think it's only about those interested in poetry, art, music. But actually there is so much profound truths about yoga, about life in general. And of course one wants to understand all about poetry because Shurabindo identified himself mainly as a poet. I mean apart from the yogi and uh, yogi yogeshwar rather and the avatar bearing the burden. But in terms of his expression, I mean if, if I may use the language of the Gita, uh, just as Sri Krishna calls himself also Bibhuti. That among the Vrishnis, he is Vasudev Krishna. So I would say if Shrivinda was to use a similar terminology in that state of consciousness, that among the poets, uh, though I know he is a perfect gentleman, full of humility, he would not say so. But one may well so that among the poets, he is Shirobindo. Because not only has he written poetry which is of the... Uh, beyond the highest class, if I may say so. But he has revealed such profound truths about the poetry. Like la- last time we read about the mantra, about the future poetry. So such profound truths he has revealed about poetry that uh, I think even uh, modern poets, many of them find difficult to really grasp. Because unlike this idea that art for art's sake and poetry for the sake of poetry... He brings out poetry also as a medium of expression and manifestation of the divine. And why not? Because if we really look at um, especially the yogis and mystics, uh, we see that they have used poetry as a means of expression. So, this volume is primarily a collection of letters. So, it's very easy to read. You to just go on reading the letters. They are very well titled, subtitled. You can pick and choose whatever we want to read. And they are very interesting asides. For example, um, there is a whole um, section on the world's greatest poets. So, they are very interesting. The disciple has asked him about uh, to rank the world's greatest poets among Valmiki, Kalidas, Homer, etc. etc. And Shubhinda ranks them. And the disciple asks, what about Vyas? Is the omission um, deliberate? He says, no, you didn't ask me. You didn't include Vyas, so I have not mentioned. But otherwise, if I have to rank, then Vyas would rank among the greatest of all poets. So Vyas and Homer, but he ranks Vyas even greater. So there are very interesting things about, um, of course, uh, Indian literature and world literature. So it's something uh, amazing. I mean, just to take uh, some of the chapters before we read, I just want to read some of these letters so that we can enjoy it. So there are three main parts. One is poetry and its creation. So it's all about the technique of poetry and how poetry comes from what source and uh, what really is the poetry that emerges from the uh, spirit. There is a very interesting, uh, there are interesting subsections. For instance, he speaks about overhead poetry, which is uh, one of the terms that Shirobindo has used. That poetry to be truly regarded as... uh, of a deep lasting value must have either the psychic uh, inspiration or inspiration from above the uh, human mind levels. Poetic intelligence is there. But the highest that it can climb is the overhead poetry where it right from the over mind it receives inspiration. And Shubhindu in his letter describes all these things. So we'll read it when it comes. Then there is a very interesting um, chapter on uh, psychic, mystic and spiritual poetry. And very interestingly, poet, yogi, rishi, prophet, genius. So whom do we call a yogi? So a yogi is one who unites with the divine. A yogi may or may not be a prophet. He may or may not be a seer. 
Similarly, a seer may not be a yogi, but he has the mantra. And uh, that is a rishi. And uh, then a poet. A poet is something like the highest that the mind can climb. And though he is not a seer, yet very often in the poet's writing, something of the seer is as if standing behind and trying to express itself. So they are very interesting um, you know, letters on these things. Then of course there is the technique and then when he speaks about translations, how one should translate and what is the theory of translation, what is the practice of translation which applies to uh, all who want to translate anything of Sri Aurobindo, especially his poetry. Because very often we see that there are literal translations and we regard them as, uh, well, that's how it should be. But when we read Sri Aurobindo, we understand that one has to take into consideration many other factors than the simple literal translation. That is something anyone can do who has a knowledge of the language in terms of the meaning. Through a dictionary you can do it actually. And now AI can do it. But it's not just about the literal sense. It's something else which the poet conveys and that should be caught. Then in part 2, he, uh, um, I mean, some of the examples in translation are Sri own translations. For instance, when he translates Shankaracharya's uh, Bhavani Ashtakam, only a portion of it. Or masterpiece, uh, King and Yogi Bhartahari's Niti Shatakam. He has translated as the century of life. The hundred, the shatakam and life. And when one reads it, at least I have read both. Uh, of course, both I have read in English translation, not, not the original Sanskrit. But when I read Shurabindo, I did feel that he has surpassed what probably King Bhartari would have written. But he conveys the meaning so powerfully, so beautifully. So there is the art and science of translation. Even uh, some of the writings from the Tantra which he has translated. Uh, Hymn to Bhavani, Goddess. So all these are very wonderful uh, writings. Then he has, part 2 has, on his own and others poetry. So we see a lot of letters on Savitri and many other poems of his own and they are very interesting some of the poems that we can read as we go by some ashram poets particularly Niroda, Amalkiran and Harinath Chattopadhyay Harinath Chattopadhyay he had called him as the most authentic um, Indian voice in English poetry he had great praise for him and of course we know Amalkiran Arjav, so many of these poets, Shubindu's comments and Shubindu's remarks on some of their poetry is there, which is very interesting. And then section 3 is practical guidance for aspiring writers. So how to write poetry, the difference between writing poetry and writing prose. Now one must understand that he is not giving a detailed account of, you know, if you have to write poetry, start studying this, that, not like that. But he is giving us the essence of things. And one of the simplest ways that when we hear poetry, which is truly sublime, then automatically the ear gets tuned to the poetic turn. And then it becomes much more convenient. So poetry is not just about rhyming. Uh, that's how they start with nursery rhymes in schools, that if they teach nursery rhymes, will develop a poetic turn. Not necessarily. In fact, most of the time, not at all. So, all this is contained here. Then part 3 is literature, art, beauty and yoga, where he appreciates poetry, art, uh, painting, visual arts, music and literature and yoga and how they connect with each other. So, because very often again there is a idea that a yogi is just supposed to sit in meditation. But in all life is yoga. Every aspect of life can be turned into yoga and poetry, music and art, as Shubindu says, are the perfect education for the soul. So this is uh, basically the quick background. But we'll read some of these letters. Uh, he, lot of occult truths are here that one can go into the earth memory and retrieve uh, what happened there, what took place 
uh, accurately according to the way one goes there and then he says something very interesting as i said there are many many uh, beautiful side lights that one will find on the way it's not just about poetry but poetry is a vast literature for instance here in one of his letters he says there is an earth memory mother speaks about it in fact she says there is a place where you will find everything docketed and you can pick it out from there so that's how she could say when certain a movie was shown and the mother says it did not happen like this it happened in a different way because she could enter that domain take out and exactly know how things happen so shurbindo says there is an earth memory from which one gets or can get things of the past more or less accurately according to the quality of the mind that receives them but this experience is not explicable on that basis now this experience he is speaking about the experience of the mystic poets who wrote uh, the stories of krishna and radha and gopis now they are very high profound mystic poetry and the mother has rated them and both shurbinder and the mother as among the best uh, occult literature so here shurbinder says for the gopis here are evidently not earthly beings so here he puts a finality that you know Uh, it's not uh, that on earth you were having vrindavan and all those stories most of the stories of shri krishna are very evidently they are leela which are not taking place on earth to imagine that you know there is an agasur who opens the mouth and everybody walks into the trap of the uh, great python i mean pythons can open the mouth but not this big that all the gopis and gopis are walking into it thinking it's a cave Uh, so these are obviously uh, stories of another plane of existence or uh, i mean putna is conceivable maybe to an extent trinavrat but most of the stories are very clearly symbolic and the place raihana raihana saw was not a terrestrial locality somebody has had the vision and has written uh, poetry on that if she had got it from the earth mind at all it could only be from the world of images created by vaishnava tradition with perhaps a personal transcription of her own but this also does not agree with all the details so it's quite likely because the vaishnava tradition has created wonderful poetry with such lovely images now they are part of the earth endowment and through that door one can access and actually experience and see the ras leela now this doesn't mean that one is experiencing it on earth but in an otherworldly plane in an otherworldly state so this is something very interesting and of course there are inspirations that can come in uh, in dreams of of a poetic nature and one may forget or lose them when one wakes up of course some poets have you know like coleridge famous poem um sometimes in altered state of consciousness they can come and it's very difficult sometimes to carry it because the links between the plane where the vision is seen or the poetic lines have been received and the outer uh, consciousness may not be there <clears throat> mother once speaks about her experience when she was 15 she would write poetry and usually she would keep it in the drawer this in her sleep she would write she would wake up and she would write one day she forgot and a mother took it saw it and she said oh my god she she is probably losing her mind because you know that child is writing such poetry and they were positivists they didn't believe in divine or anything which is uh, to the senses intangible so here he speaks a little bit about the what is the overmind aesthesis and here he also obviously we get to understand what really overmind is the overhead consciousness especially in the overmind these things become more and more the law of the vision and the law of nature wherever the overmind spiritual man turns he sees a universal beauty touching and uplifting all things uh, 
So this is one of the characteristics of the over mind when Shobinda says, I look at my enemy and see Krishna's face. Now of course this is something which goes even further, goes beyond. But in whatever direction he would turn, even things which seem to be like a battlefield where arrows are flying and where even there is things which are seemingly uh, not so beautiful, there also he will perceive the sense of beauty and the sense of the divine presence. Okay. He feels the bliss which has created the worlds and upholds them. And all that is expresses to him the universal delight is made of it, is a manifestation of it and molded into its image. So that also we find in Shurabindu's poetry. Even when he takes us through the descent into hell, you still, that poetry still communicates some kind of a rasa. And uh, in Mahabharata we see it, in Ilion we see it, where even the arrows are flying and all around we see the dance of death and yet something of this bliss can be felt in that those poetic lines. When something expresses perfectly what it was meant to express, the completeness brings with it a sense of harmony, a sense of artistic perfection. It gives even to what is discordant a place in a system of cosmic concordances. And the discords become part of a vast harmony. And wherever there is harmony, there is a sense of beauty. That's why many people cannot understand certain scenes in the Mahabharata. Now if you cut off from the totality of the scripture, then you may say that, you know, why this scene took place. And it may seem like vibhats, but even vibhats has a rust within it. But when you see it in the totality of Mahabharata, or the Ramayana for instance, I am sure, I mean it's there in Homer's, I mean, Homer's Iliad is definitely there. When, they, when there is a scene where Achilles goes and literally massacres, he fills the river with blood. Now, if you look at it in a certain way, it will sound very crude. When you read Parshuram had filled five lakes uh, with the blood of the Kshatriyas who had totally lost their way, were arrogant Kshatriyas. And uh, I am forgetting the name of that place, Pancha something. We, huh? No, not Panchatantra. That place, five lakes filled with blood. And they that is the place where Kurushetra took place later on. So it was filled with blood and yet the beauty of that story is when this is narrated, uh, so he kept on doing it till ultimately... The divine appeared before him, I mean, because Rama had come and um, Lord Vishnu comes and says, it's no more necessary because what was needed is done. Now you have the good Kshatriyas like Rama, they are already present. But then he says, this place where there are five lakes of blood, they will be regarded as a Tirthasthal. Now imagine, I mean, if you look at it purely from an outer point of view, now just imagine it will look like a gory scene from which people would like to shrink. But even today, even Kurushetra is regarded as a place, holy place in Indian thought. Uh, I mean, I am not getting into whether Kurushetra took place in the same spot or not. But the fact is that even though a very gory war took place, of course the Gita also took place. Yet it is regarded as a place uh, which is uh, very sacred. And the reason if you see at the end of it, it is the victory of Dharma. So same thing we see in Parshuram's story. So he says that the, the beauty of the artist is, particularly those who look at things from the overmind point of view, that he it brings out the beauty, the sense of divinity in everything. The overmind looks also straight at and into the soul of each thing. And not only at its form and its significance to the mind or to the life. This brings to it not only the true truth of the thing, but the delight of it. So, when overmind looks at events and circumstances, it doesn't look at it the way we look at it. We pass either moral judgments or we shrink from the appearance. We find it good, pleasant, unpleasant, painful. But overmind brings out the secret truth within it. So, it sees also the one spirit in all, the face of the divine everywhere. And there can be no greater ananda in that. In that, than that. 
So even when it is describing something which is apparently sorrowful and suffering, it sees behind that sorrow and suffering the divine workings. As we see in Savitri several places, when Shubhendu is speaking about, you know, um, the spirit rises mightier with each defeat. Its godlike wings go grow great with every fall. So we see that that divine movement is seen, and that makes a poetry truly of the overmind uh, level. And then, of course, he speaks of the overmind is not strictly a transcendental consciousness. That epithet would more accurately apply to the supramental and to the sachidanand because overmind is a cosmic consciousness. So, at the highest point of the mind, it's from where the formature, the form makers. They start. So that's why Shravinda in the Life Divine speaks of the overmind Maya. So it is from where the higher and the lower Maya, lower Maya little below, begin to operate. Beyond the cosmic is the transcendental. So, nevertheless, because it stands behind as if covered by a veil, through or shine through, or even only dimly glimmer through, and that brings the overmind touch or note. We cannot get this touch frequently unless we have torn the, the veil, made a gap in it or rent it largely away and seen the very face of what is beyond. So all these about the overmind is thesis. And then he gives certain very interesting lines. For instance, one of them is from Shakespeare. And in this harsh world, draw thy breath in pain. Now compare this with, of, of course, the Gita, that caliber, anityam asukham, lokam. But the Gita takes another turn. It almost like from the our mind takes a flight into something very high, bhajaswamam. But here Shakespeare says, and in this harsh, harsh world, draw thy breath in pain. Or in Wordsworth's, Voyaging through strange seas of thought alone. And this one, Milton's line lives by its choice of the word wander to co-locate with through eternity. So there are plenty of mm, examples. Or take Shelley's stanza, we look before and after and pine for what is not. Our sincerest laughter with some pain is fraught. Our sweetest Songs are those that tell of saddest thought. Of course, we know in Hindi they had made a whole song on this. But this is something very different. So these are very powerful lines which come from a very high plane of... Then he... Shubhinda has rated Shelley as one of the best and Keats... And he says that had Keats lived and if Shelley wrote a long poem, they would have ranked among the world's best poets. As such, they are very good. But uh, Shelley never wrote, um, perhaps he tried one of the poems which remained incomplete and so with Keats. Uh, otherwise, they would have been ranked as one of the best poets. So here uh, I read my, some of my favorite lines. The same characteristics are found in another short lyric of Shelley's which is perhaps the purest example of the psychic inspiration in English poetry. So it's an expression of a deep psychic truth, a psychic emotion, which takes the form of a body of words and touches some deepest chord in us. And what are these lines? Um, I can give not what men call love, but will thou accept not the worship the heart lifts above? And the heavens reject not the desire of the moth for the star, of the night for the morrow, the devotion to something afar from the sphere of our sorrow. So all these uh, things he brings out. And then, uh, of course, there are a lot of uh, comments here and there. For instance, there was a famous write-up on art for the sake of art. He says, why do you want to care for anything else? And like even today we see that artist. So artist doesn't care about form, about beauty. He is an artist because he knows how to draw and paint. But Sri says that why shouldn't you care for? Because in this world we are 
using everything to express a deeper perfection to lift everything to the highest possibility so why not art so all these he speaks about then he gives the difference between different sources of inspiration and then he defines very interestingly mystic poetry mystic poetry does not mean anything exactly or apparently it means things suggestively and recondite recondately things that are not known and classified by the intellect so what is mystic poetry there is something mysterious that the intellect doesn't understand or know it is intangible and the mystic somehow brings that feel or that atmosphere or that vision into a body of sound and words so that is the beauty of mystic poetry and there are plenty of other letters but i'm just taking from here and there and then as to symbols so very often we see in poetry the use of symbols in savitri we see the use of symbol extensively in many of the poem for example rose of god so what does the rose stand for so there in one of the letters shubindu says that roses originally were not in india they were brought from persia but uh, in the rose of god it stands for many things it stands for love for bliss so all these things he speaks about now the rose is very clearly a symbol bird of fire is a symbol so there is a beautiful letter on some mystic symbols if you expect matter of fact very similitude from n or a scientific ornithologically accurate swan so there is a lot of humor in it also ornithology is the um the science which studies the words birds the knowledge of birds you are knocking at the wrong door but i don't see exactly the point of your objection for instance the rigveda it speaks of the swan which is has one leg below and one leg in the sky and if it licks uh, lifts both the legs it will fly away now obviously such a swan doesn't exist on material earth but the poet has used this wonderful image swans are supposed to go to very high regions in the himalayan snow and yet they can come down and drink of the waters upon earth so swan swans exist but they are also symbol in mystic poetry the mountains so here he speaks about the lake in the poem is not a lake but a symbol the swan is not a swan but a symbol you can't expect the lake merely to ripple and do nothing else or the swans simply to swim and eat and do nothing else so we see for instance in nal damayanti the swan goes and communicates the swan here becomes the messenger messenger of high divine truths and it goes and communicate to nal about the beauty of damayanti and then goes back and communicate something to damayanti so this is you like shubhendra speaks about the ocean above and the ocean below so lot of vedic poetry the, even the poetry of puranas is full of symbols kailash is not just kailash um, on the himalayas so this uh, vision we have lost and therefore many of these stories we tend to misunderstand for instance when uh, agast rishi crosses the vindhyas so it's not just literally that he stepped over vindhya and there was a communication uh, in a material sense there was an occult communication and he said that you know don't rise so much that the sun is blocked now this story i have always found very interesting and symbolic so it's not that any mountain can rise up and really block the view of the sun but uh, the sun stands for the undivided consciousness it's a creator and to create a divide between this see bindhyas are in the middle so to create a divide between the northern side and the southern side which we still do and it says you must know so there is a crossing over which is taking place all the time there is a migration which is taking place all the time and this idea of uh, i think the thing i about other than many of other things that i learned one of the things i learned from this story is that stop calling north india and south india this one india there are northern parts of india there is the eastern western central southern parts uh, and each has its own beauty and uniqueness but this divide so agastrishi story is pointing out that we should not create a divide 
and many other things in his story point towards this. It is as much a symbol as the bird of fire or the bird of the Vedic poet who faced the guardians of the Soma and brought the Soma to Indra, perhaps carrying a pot or several pots in his claws and beaks. For I don't know how else he could have done it. How is he to use his symbol if you do not make allowances for a miraculous swan? So again we see the story of, you know, uh, the birth of the Nagas and Garudas. So these are stories which are very, very clearly symbolic. And if we have a very concrete mind which only looks at the sensory truth as the truth, then poetry is a far cry. So he says these uh, have to be taken as a symbol and becomes a metaphor. The animals of these symbols belong not to earth but to wonderland. Uh, in Shirobindo Savitri, we have many such angles, uh, animals. Um, you know, griffin, then he has uh, hippogriff, then he has uh, ma- plenty of others. Uh, that Ucheshava, that flying horse is also there in, in Savitri, finds a mention. So there are plenty of sphinx itself is, is a strange creature which finds mention in poetry and literature. So many of them belong to the subtle dragon fire, bird of bliss. All these, the gold hawk can cross the fence no more. So all these are very clearly symbol, number of flowers which are symbols of deeper truths. And the same about mystic when he speaks about the star and the moon. Um, The spiritual vision must never be intellectual, philosophical or abstract. It must always give the sense of something vivid, living and concrete, a thing of vibrant beauty or a thing of power. And this is what happens. When people are too much into concrete philosophical thought, then it becomes very difficult sometimes to appreciate poetry because there also they are looking for philosophical meanings. But the poetic sense is other than the way, I mean, we can derive intellectual meaning and also poetry from it. But imagine, you know, if we were to derive, let's say, the uh, philosophy of Savitri, it sounds very absurd. So, Savitri is not philosophy, it's a vision. It's something that the seer has seen. It is a revelation. And we can make a philosophy out of the revelation. But we lose most of its beauty and delight and even the truth. So all these um, he reveals to us. And then of course the poet, the yogi, the mystic. So here he makes a, a remark which is to be seen in a certain light. People had asked Raman Maharshi about uh, Shurabindu and they asked Shurabindu about Raman Maharshi after the comment. So there is a very interesting small little letter. A Rishi is one who sees or discovers an inner truth and puts it into self-effective language, the mantra. So the Rishi must have a mantra. So we see that Shurabindu regarded Bankim Chand as a Rishi. Why he regarded him as Rishi? Because somehow, his, in some inner hearing, he received the mantra of Bandi Matram. And he embodied it in his book, Anandamat. So, the Rishi is somebody who has this innate ability, for some reason, he opens to the higher realms and receives words, phrases, which are mantric in nature. But if the mere poet is no this is the mantra either new truth or old truth made new by expression and intuitive realization and then he speaks about he Raman Maharishi has experienced certain eternal truths by process of yoga so he is a yogi without a doubt I don't think it is by rishi like intuition or illumination nor has he the mantra so he makes a distinction. He is a yogi without doubt. But Rishi and Mantra are terms. Uh, Rishi is a word we reserve for someone who has got that illumination, ascended to higher planes and he is able to receive the Mantra. A Rishi may be a yogi, but also he may not. That explains why many of the Rishis in India, when we read their lives, so you find their Behavior is sometimes very strange. They were not Jitendriya or Jit Krodhya. 
Shivindu writes about that. That Vishamitra, Parashar, you can't call them as Jitendriya. Similarly, Durvasha, even Vishamitra, you can't call them as Jitkrodhya. So they had their defects and this thing. They may not be the perfected image of yogis, but they were rishis. Because they could see a higher truth, they had ascended to a higher plane. So a yogi may be a rishi, but also he may not. Just as a philosopher may or may not be a poet, and a poet may or may not be a philosopher. Poetic intuition and illumination is not the same thing as rishi intuition and illumination. Poetic intuition and illumination comes at a plane just a little below, the seer. So all these beautiful things. And then he speaks about a genius. Who is a genius? I never heard of anyone getting genius by effort. So of course it's contradictory. One can increase one's talent by training and labor. But genius is a gift of nature. This is uh, what, what is called a genius in the western context. In Indian context would be something like a vibhuti. An extraordinary afflatus of the divine consciousness in one particular dimension. Exaggeration of uh, in one dimension. By sadhana it is different. One can do it but that is not the fruit of effort but either of an inflow or by an opening or liberation of some important impersonal power or manifestation of unmanifested power. So in yoga, the door may open to a higher consciousness which may suddenly pick up some possibility in the sadhak and turn him into a genius. And I suppose that would explain some other people open to Shirobinda and the mother who turned into a genius in poetry and many other areas. And then of course he speaks about experiences and imagination and all these questions that we often ask and get mixed up. Then he speaks about rhythm. How can rhythm be explained? It is a matter of the ear, not of the intellect. Of course, there are the technical elements, but you say you do not understand yet about them. But it is not a matter of technique only. The same outer technique can produce successful or unsuccessful rhythms. One has to learn to distinguish by the ear. And the difficulty for you is to get the right sense of the cadences of the English language. That is not easy for it has many outer and inner elements. And yes, it can come by grace. So this idea that you know, Catching that rhythm and defining that rhythm and talking about techniques, it's, it has its place and its importance. But something much more important is the awakening of the inner ear, as the Kin Upanishad puts it, the ear behind the ear. And of course, it speaks about uh, a very uh, bit humorously about iambics and enapes. Free words, very often we hear these terms about Savitri. Iambics and Anapes can be combined in English words at any time, provided one does not set out to write a purely Iambic or a purely Anapestic meter. Mixed Anapest and Iam make a most beautifully flexible lyric rhythm. It has no more connection with the free words than the constellation of the great bear has to do with the cat's tail. Free words, now he describes free words. Free words indicates words free from the shackles of rhyme and meter, but rhythmic or trying to be rhythmic in one way or another. If you put rhymes, it will be considered a shackle and the free will kick at the chain. So, you know, by its nature, it is free words, it has a rhythm, and one has to get at the rhythm and then discusses the problem of free words, etc. Then he even speaks about, you know, rhymes in English poetry, like Humpty Dumpty and all this, and why. He said that may be very lovely, but that's not the way to really discover poetry. Then they are very interesting letters on Savitri. And one of them is, someone has asked him, with your silent consciousness, it should be possible to draw from the highest planes. 
with the slightest pull. So why you had to write Savitri twelve times nearly? Even some other poems, Rose of God, there are other Nirvana. So he has corrected them. But he says very clearly, these corrections also came by the inspiration from above. So corrections were not made on the basis of an intellectual reading. The corrections came from above and the re-corrections also came from above. And here Shubhindu gives an answer. The highest planes are not so accommodating as all that. If they were so, why should it be difficult to bring down and organize the supermind in the physical consciousness? So there are states of consciousness that you can experience. But if you have to give them a form of words which embody that state of consciousness, it requires effort. It doesn't happen easily. Because the higher we rise, the freer the consciousness becomes, the vaster it becomes, uh, the supple, more supple it becomes, very difficult to then chain it in any way, including a set of words. What happy-go-lucky, fancy, web-spinning, ignore muses you all are. You speak of silence, consciousness, over-mental, supramental, etc. as if they were so many electric buttons. You have only to press and there you are. So, of course, apart from the humor, there is so much profound truth in it. It may be one day. But meanwhile, I have to discover everything about the working of all possible modes of electricity. Of course, electricity here is referring to the supramental and of course expressing it, manifesting upon earth. All the laws, possibilities, perils, etc. Construct modes of connection and communication. Make the whole far wiring system. Try to find out how it can be made foolproof and all that in the course of a single lifetime. And I have to do it while my blessed disciples are firing off their gay or gloomy a priori reasonings at me from a position of entire irresponsibility <laughs> and expecting me to divulge everything to them, not in hints, but at length. Lord, God in omnibus. And that is why we see that initially it was just a small nucleus of people in the ashram. Shobindu did not allow this expansion. It is only after the supramental manifestation. Until then, the perils, what may happen, because when a, such a truth descends, and that's what we see in Savitri, truth descending too soon might break the imperfect earth. So he had to do this, make it foolproof, everything, and then yes, it could be carried to the world. And then we come toward the end. Uh, <laughs> this is he says that somebody has translated one of his poems and uh, he speaks about it that the idea is that work and knowledge and power can only obey the divine and give him service love alone can compel him because of course this is about the poem God where Shubindo writes that master of all who work and rule and know servant of love so somebody has translated it in Bengali and Shubindo says that, well, the idea in the poem is that work and knowledge and power can only obey the divine and give him service. Love alone can compel him. Because, of course, love is self-giving and the divine gives himself in return. As for the second verse, it does not give the idea at all. That is, he who disdainest not the worm to be, nor even the clod. So, Shubhinda says, to have no contempt for the clod or the worm does not indicate that the non-despiser is the divine. Such an idea would be absolutely meaningless and in the last degree feeble. This small little example is to convey to us how when we literally translate, we may lose the inner sense. Because actually if you see the poem, it's all about God, what he can do with all that greatness and glory, the humility that he can even identify with it and lift it up. That is the idea. Not regarding it as equal, as you know, it is said in the Gita, that's a yogi who can do it. Any yogi could have that equality or somebody much less than a yogi. The idea is that being omnipotent, omniscient, infinite, supreme, the divine does not scorn to descend even into the lowest forms, the obscurest figures of nature 
and animate them with the divine presence. That shows his divinity. The whole sense has fizzled out in the translation. So when we literally translate, obviously if you literally translate it would be that uh, thou who didst Danish not. Now this thou is about the divine. This thou is not anyone who does not disdain the worm and the clod. And Now this is possible for any yogi. So this is where probably the error took place. And he says the whole sense has fizzled out. And then, but he says something, you know, his perfect gentlemanliness. You need not say all that to the poetess that I am writing to you. But perhaps you might very delicately hint to her that if she could bring in this point, it would be better. Only Shobindo knows how to even make criticism beautiful. Then perhaps she would herself change the words. And then of course there are a number of, uh, some letters on the bird of fire. The bird of fire is the living vehicle of the gold fire of the divine light and the whole fire of the divine and the white fire of the divine tapas and the crimson fire of divine love. For everything else of the divine consciousness. So, there are, you know, beautiful images and Shubhindu's reply on Rose of God that roses were found in Persia. Seven ecstasies are seven layers at which the bliss expresses itself. And then comes something very interesting. Somebody has, Amalda asked him that, you know, uh, why don't you send us some poetry um, of the overmind heights? And Shubhindu says that um, it is, you know, he needs the time and all that. But suddenly he sends to the writer. This is a very interesting letter which Amal Kiran uh, speaks of in his own reminiscences. That how he had asked and Shubhindu suddenly graciously sent to him the first few lines of Savitri. And that is how Savitri started coming out into the world. Because he had asked for it. And so he says that, you know, you can't have uh, just overmind manufacture to order. All I can do is to give you from time to time some lines from Savitri on condition you keep them to yourself for the present. And uh, later on he revised them and made it still further. And um, Amal Kiran writes that, you know, Nalnida was the divine postman. He would carry Shobindo's letters to people. And Shobindo had said not to share what he is writing to Amal Kiran. And he says when Amal Kiran would receive, Nalnida would keep looking at him a bit. Uh, maybe he was able, able to read something that you know there inside or there going on in Amal Kiran's mind and he was looking bit puzzled bit uh, you know a strange expression on his face and these are the lines which he has given it was the hour before the gods awake across the path of the divine event the huge now this is see he has corrected it later on but here the, he is sending him one of the early drafts, the huge unslumbering spirit of night. But later on he writes, the huge foreboding mind of night. The huge unslumbering spirit of night alone in the unlit temple of immensity. Later on it becomes inner unlit temple of eternity. So that's how the, he, uh, he gives it and at the end he writes, there, promise fulfilled for a wonder. So this is how, uh, yeah. And uh, how he took criticism, there is something to be learned. Just imagine, of course there were people, the higher you rise, the more you are likely to be criticized. It's almost like an axiomatic rule because you will be the most misunderstood. But here it's about poetry. Now normally if you have made a creation and somebody uh, criticizes you, how you would take it. But look at how Shobindo takes it. So, uh, when some of these lines were criticized because people didn't understand and even Amal Kiran would write. Of course, Amal Kiran later on said, I deliberately used to ask him these questions so that, you know, uh, in the eyes of the world, the poetry can come out as perfect. But whatever be the reason, 
generally in, in, in yoga we don't expect to ask the guru and point out that there could be a mistake here and a mistake there. And when he uh, spoke to Shirvinda, there is a long letter where he accepts some of them that okay, you have pointed out, little bit changed. But later on, he rationally explains one after another. Why it should be here and why this is not to be substituted, what this image means and any other image that you are suggesting would not go. And it is on this basis that the mother had made a remark once. She said that um, and people had the audacity to ask him questions and point out to him his mistakes. And then she says, and Shurabindu, like a perfect gentleman, would spend time to keep on replying and explaining. He didn't have to explain. He could have just said, see, I don't have time for all this. I know what I have written. And just take it or leave it. But yet he would sometimes just accept a little bit and change. That's his humility. So two things, three things that the mother spoke about Sri One is his humility. Second is compassion. Third is his gentlemanliness. Of course, many other things apart. But in this letter, the last letter which we will read today, We'll do a second part because it's a very beautiful uh, uh, volume. So he says, I am not at all, I am not at all times impervious to criticism. I have accepted some of yours and changed my lines accordingly. <laughs> <It is. laughs> I mean, actually, if you read the lines he has changed, it looks like it is just a concession given to a disciple. <laughs> but the Lord can do it. I have also, though not often accepted some adverse criticism from outside and remolded a line or a passage from here and there. But your criticisms are based upon an understanding appreciation of the poem. Its aim, meaning, method, the turn and quality of its language and verse technique. In your friend's judgment, I find an entire absence of any such understanding and accordingly, I find his criticisms to be irrelevant and invalid. What one does not understand or perceive its meaning and spirit, one cannot fruitfully criticize. So even to criticize, one must understand the meaning, purpose, the way, the method, the aim, everything. Then only one has a right. And look at Sri with all his achievements, his knowledge, his caliber, capacity, how he is accepting it, a place or here they are modifying it and when he is not accepting, he is giving his own reasons in some of the most perfectly gentle manly language. This is something which one finds repeatedly in Sri Namaste.